You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Traveling, um, sometimes it's a bit tough to study and uh, tough, to, uh, and tough to teach at times because uh, to the listener it might seem redundant at times as you hear of the traveling and the city names and things like that. And, uh, and yet, you know, I just come back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where it says, all scripture is given by God. Even these narratives on traveling is breathed out by the Lord and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so even these sections that, uh, you know, about the journey and the traveling, it's so amazing that it was breathed out by God. It was important enough for the Lord to have Luke pen. And so it's definitely important enough for us to study. And so neat as, you know, you look at um, apologetics, that even city names and locations, they all prove the validity of the scriptures. Because you look at many false documents like the Book of Mormon, and these places don't exist but as it's written in the scriptures, we find, um, we find it all validated as you take a trip to Israel. And to this day, these places still exist, and you can visit them. So um, more than even that, we know that the Lord is equipping us. He's uh, correcting us. He's instructing us. And, uh, and I'm stoked about that. So here in uh, chapter 23, we're going to see that God is so sovereign. He's in absolute control in those times that seem so hopeless to us. You know, some of you are in those times right now. Man, is this ever going to end? Could it ever get any better? Um, is, is God really in control? Well, Paul is at a moment in his life where, uh, man, he's in the midst of some peril, some perilous times. He's in the midst of some trouble. And we're going to see God's hand upon him uh, even in those times. So uh, through the opposition today, we're going to read. We're going to see some comfort from the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see some intervention by the Lord. So chapter 23, um, as we're digging into it, uh, we remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul says, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. As we've been studying Acts chapters 20, uh, 21 through 23, uh, Paul's back in Jerusalem. He was longing to get back to Jerusalem that he might preach the gospel. He said in chapter uh, 21 that he was bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, just stoked to preach to his brothers, his Jewish brothers. Hopefully, you know, they'd hear his stories of his adventures in faith throughout Asia, and they will come to Christ. If I could just have an opportunity to preach to them. Well, we see last week we were in this chapter 21 that it didn't go as well as he had hoped. Uh, it was actually, you know, some, some major persecution against him uh, there in chapter 21. So uh, persecution happens, opposition happens, and we see it happening major, majorly here in chapter 23 as well. And uh, John 15 is just a, an encouragement to us in verse 18 that we should know this, that the world hates you, but know that it hated me before it hated you. You know, we're going to be hated if we're living godly, if we're living lives that are conforming to the word of God, if we're looking like Jesus out in the world, we're going to be hated. 
If you're not hated, you've got to ask yourself, man, am I really living for Jesus in the world? Am I really a little Christ out and about in my workplace or in my school? And so, although it's tough, it's something that Jesus went through, and it's something that we as his disciples can expect. And so in chapter 23, we just resume this trial that Paul had been in. You remember, he made it to Jerusalem finally, ready to preach the gospel. And James, really the church leader there in Jerusalem, says, Hey, there's a bunch of people that are wondering if you're still the good little Jew boy that you used to be. So could you please, you know, take part in this vow? I think it'll really show them, you know, that you still care about the law. You still care about the temple. You still care about your heritage. And so take this vow, shave your head, and go offer this hair up in the temple uh, as a burnt offering. And so uh, Paul did it, showing sensitivity to the Jewish brothers. And as he's in there in the temple, um, some uh, Asian Jews who had given him trouble over in Ephesus, uh, they see him and they spot him in the temple. And they create this giant uproar about him, saying that he'd been speaking out against the law, against the customs, against the temple, and that he even brought an Ephesian uh, Gentile into the inner courts of the temple, which was big time, don't do it, uh, back in those days especially. And so he went through this, this trial. They, they were uh, persecuting him. They were beating on him. The Romans saw that he was getting beat up. So they jump on him. They pull him away from the crowd. The crowd is so uh, hostile against Paul. They have to pack Paul up on their shoulders and, and they pick him up on top of some stairs. And Paul says, hey, can I preach from up here? <laughs> can, I, can I address the crowd? And he gets to have this stair pulpit, you know, like Spurgeon used to have in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, you know. Up on the stairs, he preaches to the, uh, to the Jews down there. And he tells his testimony of the road to Damascus. And since then, he shares of his encounter with the risen Jesus and how God had used him so mightily. And the Jews listened to that. That's awesome. They listened. Until he mentioned that the Lord told him to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And it says that at this word, they, you know, they, they, went hostile again. They shot out the, at the mouth at him again, and they started grabbing at him again. And so the Roman commander said, well, hey, we're going to examine you under scourging, under whipping, to see if, you know, see, see what's really going on. And Paul said, can you rip a, whip a Roman, or rip a Roman, either way, uh, can you whip a Roman? And, uh, and the commander says, you're a Roman? Yeah, I was born a Roman. And so they said, whoa, we are not supposed to touch a Roman until he's had, you know, formal charges made against him. And so uh, that's kind of a catch up, a recap as to where we are today. In verse 30 of chapter 22, we'll pick up, uh, says the next day, because he wanted to know, this is the Roman commander, he wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So Paul just gazes intently at the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish supreme court that Paul used to be a part of back when he was Saul. He was a part of the Supreme Court. These are all people that he knew. Many of them were, you know, former buddies of his. And he looks intently and gazes at these guys that he really loves, and he really wants them to know Jesus. And he's hoping that this turns out to be a great occasion to share the gospel. And so it seems like he starts out pretty well, wouldn't you say? 
men and brethren. You know, that's kind of a nice start, isn't it? Um, technically, the Sanhedrin would say, you're supposed to call us father. You know, that's, so he, he actually kind of erred there. But I thought we were buddies, you know. Remember back in the day when I was Saul? But men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Quite a statement. Can you say that statement? Can I say that statement? That we've lived before God in all good conscience. I think even when Paul was persecuting the Christians, he thought he was doing the will of God. Paul, when he was Saul, was just, he was wanting to please the Lord. He was zealous for God and the things of God. You know, he, he had a clear conscience, at least he thought, until Jesus caught him on the road to Damascus and said, why are you persecuting me? Oh man, <laughs> I haven't been doing right by God. And so ever since then, he's just been striving to live a a life pleasing for the Lord. And really, that's a theme all throughout Paul's epistles. He's constantly saying, man, I want my conscience to be right before the Lord. In the next chapter here in Acts, chapter 24, verse 16, he says, I always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Is that you? Can that be said of you? I always strive to have a good conscience, a conscience without offense, not only before God, but also before men. Interesting that the world, even the secular world, they want to have a clear, clean conscience. They don't like to feel guilty. So much so that the conscience fund was created. You may have heard of the conscience fund. It's one of the three gift funds maintained by the United States Treasury And it's used for volunteer contributions from people who've stolen from or defrauded the government. And so this fund was created in 1811 with its first contribution being $5. You know, somebody just had really ripped off the government with that, you know, Abraham Lincoln. I guess there wasn't the Abraham Lincoln back then, but that $5 bill, you know. And so he donated this five bucks to just oh, I just can't sleep at night. I'm tossing and turning. I just feel so dirty and wrong, you know? So I'm going to give this five bucks back. Within 175 years uh, of that, uh, $5.7 million has been contributed to this anonymous gift uh, or giving back fund. So many people that had ripped off the government and felt bad about it. One of the, one of the uh, letters that came with a nine-cent donation was from someone that had stolen three different three cent stamps you know that was just eating them up oh nine cents i just can't (laughs) chewing their fingernails off you know get 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 this off my conscience and we laugh at that some of us have even donated to that (laughs) but you know we do sorts of things like that you know we oh, I have this guilty conscience, and instead of coming in humility before the Lord and confessing my sins and receiving forgiveness, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this good deed. You know, I'm going to help at the oasis, and that will appease the Lord. You know, I'm going to help out with the helping hands ministry, and that will appease the Lord. I'll do three weeks of children's ministry. Hopefully that will appease the Lord. Or I'll, you know, I'll rake my neighbor's yard or whatever it might be. Just I'll work it off. Lord, I'll work it off because I've got to work it off. My conscience is bothering me. And you know, you could do that and have some temporary gratification and appeasement of that guilt. Or you can do what Hebrews chapter 9 tells us. In Hebrews chapter 9, why don't we flip there because we're going to look at two different Hebrews passages. 
one in Hebrews 9 and one in Hebrews 10. But there in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, we're thinking back to the Jewish sacrifices in the Old Testament, where it says, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So think in Old Testament. You know, if slaughtering a lamb or a bull or a goat does a work, did a work, it pointed ahead toward Jesus, and it would cover the sin, how much more would that perfect, spotless blood of God himself, Jesus Christ, laying his life down on the cross, not only cover our sin, but completely obliterate our, our sin, take away our sin, and not only take away our sin, but cleanse our mind, cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Man, if you thought giving that nine cents back lifted the burden, <laughs> how much more what Jesus has done for you? We're told in Hebrews, that lifts the burden. And flip over a chapter to Hebrews 10, 21. Still thinking Old Testament, thinking of high priests here, thinking sacrifices in the temple. It says we have a high priest in chapter 10, verse 21. A high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near to the house of God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised us is faithful. You guys, when your conscience is being weighed down, instead of giving a gift to the Lord to try to appease the Lord, instead of giving something and working that off, isn't it crazy that the Bible tells us to receive the gift? We're to receive the gift so our conscience can be clean. Not give a gift. That's contrary to the world, isn't it? The world says, work it off. And Jesus says, I've worked it off. I'm the perfect one who paid for it. And so if you're like Paul, or if you're not like Paul, if you can't say, I've got a clean conscience to this day, come to Jesus. Receive his gift. Receive his forgiveness. Receive the propitiation, the substitute of his blood for your sin. And you too can have a clean conscience before God on this day. Seems like a good intro to, uh, you know, your message to the Sanhedrin. Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God to this day. Good intro, right? They didn't think so. Check out verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. <laughs> it's going well going well. This is, a, this is a good trial. Glad that thing, you know, yeah, men and brethren, I, oh my gosh, I, you know, a rough, rough crowd, rough crowd, <laughs> you know, and, and Paul's response is one that you should underline for your future conflicts. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Yeah, that's, that's a good way to respond. You know, write that down for the next time you're driving down Highway 97, someone cuts you off, just whitewash, whitewash wall people, okay? Just, they don't understand it. They don't get it when you yell whitewashed wall. You know, Paul being a prophet, 
he, he's just, he's in the company of some good men. You read of, you know, Micaiah, you read of Jeremiah, these guys that the Lord would say, speak the word that I tell you to speak. Don't be afraid of the faces of the people. And I'll tell you, when you confront people, when you're prophesying to people, sometimes their faces, they get mad, they get angry, they're cursing you, under, their lips are forming words that you know what they're saying, you know. And, and it's easy to be afraid of the face. And we're told, don't be afraid of the face, but you speak when the Lord tells you to speak. And both Micaiah and Jeremiah and one of the best prophets, Jesus, they were all struck in the face. They were all stuck, struck in the face as they spoke the truth. But they responded different. And Paul has kind of a different response, one that I don't really recommend, but it bore some truth to it. As he calls Ananias a whitewashed wall, he's actually going back to Matthew chapter 23 and using the phrase that Jesus used to describe the Pharisees. You guys remember Jesus there, you know, condemning the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? And he says this, Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You know, Jerusalem was a place where pilgrims would come from hundreds, if not a thousand miles away for special feasts and to go into the temple and have these incredible times with the Lord. And yet all around Jerusalem are tombs. Even to this day, there's just tombs surrounding graves. I'm not kidding you. Just look up a picture of Jerusalem and you can see the boxes all around the city of just graves, nothing but graves. Well, as these guys would be on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem with their family and their donkey, and they stumble and trip upon a dirty, nasty grave, they're unclean. Their whole vacation is ruined. They can't go into the temple. They've got to go through this purification process. So the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees came up with a great idea to kind of sidestep the law. We'll whitewash the tombs. We'll make them look good. We'll make them look clean so that if people bump into them, they can still come in. It'll be okay because nothing really looked dirty and nothing really got on them. And so Jesus uses this example for hypocrisy. He says, look, Ananias, or look, Caiaphas at that time. Look, Pharisees, look, religious people. You look great on the outside. Pious, absolutely. Religious, you get an A+. Okay, you got the special religious outfit on and everything. But the Lord knows that inside your heart, there is rottenness, there are dead bones, there is wickedness, there is evil. You're a hypocrite. And Jesus condemns that in Matthew chapter 23. Paul spoke the truth to Ananias. He was a whitewashed tomb or a whitewashed wall, yet he didn't speak it in love. And so Ananias, this high priest who commanded Paul to be struck, he was a whitewashed wall. He was kind of a mobster, gangster type priest, if you've ever heard of one. I'm actually one myself, so be nice to me. Um, but history tells us, Josephus himself, the Jewish historian, tells us that Ananias was a wicked man. He accepted bribes and he gave out bribes from both the Romans and the Jews. He became so corrupt that the Romans themselves actually charged Ananias with corruption. And within five years of this encounter with Paul, Ananias' own son rose up against him, burnt down his dad's house, and struck his dad down dead. Kind of a prophecy fulfilled in a sense of what Paul said here, that God will strike you, you hypocrite. And God struck him indeed. 
And yet I think that there's a more excellent way than this blistering condemnation for the conduct of these men. Something we can learn from. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. You know, if you're in the midst of a, of a trial and accusations, you know, one of the worst things you can do is just shout out that these guys are hypocrites in an angry tone. And, you know, Solomon's wisdom is, is good wisdom to have that soft answer because it turns away wrath. Are there any husbands here that can attest to that, you know, maybe even today, <laughs> you know, how we, we can, you know, give a grumpy answer back or something that's less than pleasant and it's read into wrong or it's read into right. And it just gets us into trouble and, you know, a little hot water there. We've all been there, right? We all have friends that we've lashed out at in anger. And a harsh word, it stirs up anger. But there's such wisdom in, man, just hearing a hard thing, getting hit in the mouth or whatever, and just taking some time and praying. Taking some time and just praying for the Holy Spirit to empower you. One of my best friends is a Calvary Chapel pastor in Burns. Pray for him. He's in Burns, okay? And uh, he's over there, and this guy that he thought was his friend just quit returning his calls and quit coming to the church. And Josh was just really concerned. And he had borrowed this guy's Harvest Crusade DVDs from Greg Laurie's Crusades, you know? And, uh, And this guy... Would, would not answer Josh's calls. And finally, Josh went by the house. He saw people were inside. He knocked on the door. No one would answer the door. And Josh is like, hey, I'm just wondering, is everything okay? Or why? I think you're at home. And, and the guy just texts him back, put the DVDs on the porch and go away. He's like, okay. You know, long story short, gets nothing but cuss, cussing voicemails in return from loving, you know, reaching out to this guy. Finally, Josh uh, gets out on the highway there and burns, and this guy meets him head on on the highway and, and swerves in front of him and pulls up right next to his pickup. And Josh is trying to say, what's going on, man? What did, what did I do? And the guy just reaches across and just slaps Josh's head and sl- knocks his hat off. And Josh is like, what is... Josh never got a word in. The guy yelled at him and cussed at him the whole time and drove off. And Josh is, what, what should I do? What should I do? So we're at the Boise Pastors Conference a couple weeks ago. Pastor Bob Caldwell from Boise sharing stories about what to do in those situations. He himself said, once a man swung at him, he swung back, pushed the guy up against the wall and shuck him around and immediately knew that he was in sin. <laughs> and he fell down at this guy's feet and began to kiss the guy's feet and say, I'm so sorry, I sinned. I lashed out at you in sin. And Paul kind of in the same place, lashes out, lashes back, calls him names, um, you know, true names, but not in much love. <laughs> and, uh, and so in verse four, you see those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know brethren that he was the high priest for it's written. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Man, you got to just admire the humility in Paul. It's hard to like eat humble pie that quick, isn't it? God will strike you, you whitewash. Well, I am so sorry. Kiss the feet, you know. I am so sorry. Yeah, you know, Exodus chapter 12 tells us not to speak evil against a ruler of your people. That was, that was wrong. <laughs> that was wrong. Paul eats that humble pie. He, he shows humility. 
And he, you know, he's able to say to Timothy in 1 Timothy that, you know, man, I desire that prayers and intercession and supplication be made for those that rule over you, for your kings and for all who are in authority, whether political figures or spiritual leaders. Pray for them. Don't revile them and speak evil of them. Pray for them. They've been appointed there by God. Hard to do, huh? It's hard to do. You read Fox News or you get the... You know, the fun email with the really big blue fonts, you know, that's dissing Obama or whatever, and the forwards, you know, and, and you just, oh, that guy or, oh, that senator or that pastor, you know. Um, and man, instead of lashing out and reviling, we should pray, huh? We should pray for our leaders. And Paul there, he just, man, I'll admit, I was wrong there. I was wrong in my reaction, Verse 6, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council. He's like, okay, let's move on. (laughs) Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there's no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested. Okay, so the Sanhedrin, and and don't let your mind shut off with these foreign words, Sanhedrin, you know, I'm not used to that word, so I'm not even going to listen anymore. Pharisees, shutting down, Rory, shutting down. You know, Sadducees, okay, let's learn. Let's learn what these are. So the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, 70 Jewish rulers that Paul is standing before, okay? Half of them are Pharisees who were the conservative religious guys of the day, okay? They were the ones that Jesus had many rebukes towards. And Matthew chapter 23 is a whole chapter of rebukes against these religious, self-righteous, whitewashed tombs, okay? The other half were the Sadducees. They were the more liberal, Unitarian Jews that made up part of that uh, Sanhedrin, that Supreme Court. Now, these liberal guys, the San, uh, Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And do you guys remember my little tool to help you remember what a Sadducee was? The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead or angels or spirits. They had no life. Let's be honest, okay? They were sad. They, were, they had a sad existence. But you know what? One wasn't better than the other. They both were in sin. They both needed Jesus. They both needed a Savior. But Paul, in his tact, he says, okay, this trial's going nowhere right now. It's, it's been about me. Let's, let's get this trial to what it's really about. The trial here isn't about me and whether I shaved my head wrong or I went into the temple with an Ephesian. That's not what it's about. The trial here is about the resurrection of the dead. Jesus, the one who resurrected from the dead, and we who also will rise from the dead. Let's make the trial about what it's really about here. And so there's this dissension. Yeah, you know, the people that don't believe in the resurrection, the people that do, and they, they're pitted against each other. And the Pharisees, at the middle of verse 9, they protested saying, we find no evil in this man. If a spirit or an angel spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander of the Romans, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go out and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the barracks. So, you know, at first it seemed like that would be a good 
simmering down to the conflict, and yet it caused more conflict. The Pharisees, they actually admit, you know what, this guy's got some legitimate arguments here. You know, we believe he's had an encounter on the Damascus road, whether it was an angel or a spirit. Notice they don't confess that it was Jesus, who Paul claimed it to be, risen from the dead. But they say, you know what, we, we don't find any guilt in this guy. He's obviously had some kind of a supernatural encounter. So take that, Sadducees. The Sadducees are fighting. The Pharisees are fighting. These are the, supposed to be the people of God and the representatives of God. And yet, how are they treating Paul? Hostile. So much so, he's almost ripped to pieces. And as you see that harsh language there in verse 10, that a commander of the Romans was afraid that Paul would be ripped to pieces, he knew what he was worried about. Then you have verse 12 and that first word, but. You got all of this hostility and fighting and, you know, Paul is in such danger. But then the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me at Rome. While Paul has had all of this opposition we now see consolation. We see comfort by Jesus himself appearing to Paul, standing by Paul. You want to notice first that Jesus calls Paul by name. He says, Paul. Jesus knew and spoke Paul's name. And you know what? Whenever Jesus speaks our name, it comforts us and it revives us to know that he's with us in our darkest hours. To know that the God of the universe doesn't just think of us as one of many among billions, but he knows our name, he knows our trials, he knows what we're going through, and that he's with us. Notice that the Lord stood by Paul. If you flip back a few chapters to chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus speaks to Paul in a vision at night. And he says, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Man, when you're at your workplace or your school or or out on the street or wherever it might be, and the Holy Spirit's prompting you to open your mouth about Jesus, don't be terrified. The Lord is with you. He'll speak for you. He'll bring remembrance to you, the things that he'll say, but he's with you. In Matthew chapter 28, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So Jesus closes with, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Are we in the end of the age yet? Just wondering. Kind of seems like it. I mean, we're almost there, right? Hopefully, ready to see Jesus, you know, but he's with us. He's with his disciples. And if you're a, a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, then you're a disciple, If you filled out the two-page questionnaire, then you're really a disciple. No, not really. But hopefully you get those filled out. No, I'm kidding. Totally joking. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, He himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Are you guys going through something right now? The hardships, just the, the stress, actual conflict with people. Man, that'll keep you up at night. You'll eat anxious bread. I've gone through a lot in the last five months. I'm honestly surprised my hair hasn't fallen out. I'm honestly surprised I haven't gone gray. There's things that are just keeping me up at night and, and you know, just people and, ah. Oh. And so often we think, Jesus isn't with me. I'm in this one alone. 
I'm all by myself on this. And he's just, man, where'd you get that? Where did you ever get that I've left you? What have you ever gone through that I wasn't with you in? You know, in these last five months, it seems like when we moved into our new house, we've gone through these, these trials where we're just praying and fasting through things and just, just wrestling, Lord, what are you doing and what should I do? And, and we live right behind Barnes Butte. And our, our view of our house looks out to Barnes Butte. It's beautiful, rocky outcropping. And five different times I've sat there and prayed and prayed and just looked at the mountain and Five different times the trial has gone away and I'm thanking the Lord for his faithfulness in that trial and I'm looking at the mountain and the Lord has spoke to me and he's just said, Rory, you know how every time you go through a trial, you look out your window, the mountain's there in the trial and you look out the window when the trial's over and the mountain's still there. Guess what? That's me. That's me. I'm with you in the trial. I'm not even shaken in the littlest amount. I'm just as strong. I'm just as bold as I was then. Whether it's in the trial, after the trial, going into the trial, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and I'm still the same God. Guys, don't forsake God in the midst of the trials. He's not forsaken you. He's there with you. And Paul's a guy that could say, he's been there. He's been there. I've been through so many trials. I've been persecuted so many times, and Jesus has always been there. You know, in a couple of years, Paul is going to stand before Caesar Nero, and he's going to write about this account in 2 Timothy, the, the final verses of 2 Timothy. And he's going to write about, hey, you know what? When I stood before Nero, I stood alone. None of my friends were there with me. But the Lord stood with me. And he delivered me from the mouth of the lion. Everyone else forsook me. Here in Jerusalem, in chapter 23, we don't see any of Paul's friends there with him. Leave my friend alone. I'm James, the brother of Jesus. And you're not touching my friend Paul. You, know, you don't see any of that. Leave my friend alone. <laughs> Paul's by himself. Paul's a lonely individual, except that he's got Jesus with him. I stood alone, but the Lord stood with me. And so Paul, be of good cheer or be of good courage. Jesus is being, you know, the cheerleader for Paul here. Saying, rah, rah, ree. Kick him in the knee, you know. Give him Jesus. Don't worry about it. Just like you gave him Jesus here in Jerusalem, you're going to go give him in Rome. You're not going to die here. Keep going. Be of good cheer, for as you've testified of me in Jerusalem, so you should bear witness of me in Rome. That is the dream of Paul's heart to make it to Rome, because all roads went to Rome. It's the old saying, all roads come to Rome. And if Paul could get Jesus to Rome, the gospel to Rome, he knew it would go down those roads to the end of the earth. It would go across the empire. And so in verse 11, man, just a very timely, fitting promise from Jesus. It comes just in the nick of time because more opposition is coming here in verse 12. When it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they killed Paul. But Jesus, I thought you said I was going to Rome and everything was going to be perfect. I didn't say that. <laughs> I said you're going to Rome and I'm going to be with you. When it was day, they, they bound themselves under this oath. We're not eating or drinking till Paul is dead. There were more than 40 who'd formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we've killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggested the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of the ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. 
So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who've bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, uh, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but it, um, had, done nothing, uh, had nothing charged against him, deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews... Lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you at the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So we see in this chapter opposition. We see consolation, more opposition. But then we see the Lord's intervention. The Lord said, hey, we're going to Rome. We're going to Rome. And you know what? I'm going to make the, make the way available for you. You know, immediately the, the mob forms and the people are fasting about, man, we really want to kill this guy. We're not eating and drinking until he's dead. But the Lord supernaturally intervenes. And yet that supernatural intervention comes in the form of the most natural ways it would seem. From a nephew of Paul's. By the way, isn't it kind of cool to hear of some of his close family? Like, you know, this nephew that just loves his uncle. Probably a younger nephew, Simmons, that he held the Roman guy's hand and went off to like tell the secret, you know, probably was a littler guy. But through the nephew bringing about the news, intervention, God's hand on the situation, through the commander getting this entourage around Paul so that he would have 472 Roman soldiers made up of spearmen and foot soldiers and cavalry guys. I mean, this was a huge entourage, a huge escort to go these 47 miles. Imagine in this day and age, if you're driving down Highway 97 and all of a sudden, you know, 200 Humvees are going down the road. I mean, you'd just be like, what is going on? You know, you hear the, the roar of the treads on the highway. You see the machine guns. You see these guys decked out in armor. And, you know, through talking to people that have been in Ben that day or whatever. They, you know, what, what's this all about? What are the, all these Humvees for? What is this escort all about? Or what's going on? Oh, they're just transporting some prisoner, you know, over to Ontario or something like that. You know, it's, it's, they're just transporting a prisoner. You, this guy must be a majorly important prisoner. 
And he was. This guy was. Having, you know, at the time there were only a thousand Roman troops in Jerusalem, and 472 of them, half the Roman troops in Jerusalem, are sent with Paul. The Lord made a provision. He made a protection for Paul. It wasn't that a prisoner was being transported that's awesome. What's, being, what's awesome is the gospel is being transported by horseback here. We're going to Rome, and we leave this morning. We leave tonight at 9 o'clock, actually, is that third hour of the night. We're leaving, we're going to Rome, and we're going to make a couple stops on the way. And Caesarea is one of them. The gospel was going forth to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we get to read about it here. It's so awesome. The Lord intervenes. You know, so often we look for, you know, an angel coming down from heaven to rescue us out of our situation when the Lord just uses the most natural means, the nephew that overhears something, and he's kind of that kid that's always listening in on other people's conversation, and the Lord used that that day. Or a, or a Roman commander that has some compassion and, and shows some good character. Or a whole bunch of soldiers that just naturally the God used them to get the gospel out of there, to get the gospel up towards Rome. It's an exciting thing. It's an exciting thing to see. And so the Lord didn't forsake Paul, even when 40 men vowed, I won't eat or drink until I kill this guy. The Lord didn't forsake Paul, but stood by Paul. And if you're here today, you can just know. You can know the Lord will stand by you. You know, Paul tells Timothy that there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. That means Jesus will stand by you when you stand before the Lord. Jesus will stand before you when you have to give an account of the things you've done. And as Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, stands before the Father, he'll say, Father, you see these nail prints in my hand? You see this wound in my side? You see that I look like a a lamb that's been slain? You know what? I did it for this guy. I did it for this lady. They put their faith and their trust in me, and you know what? I stand by them. The Lord will stand by you too. Just rest in him. Put your trust in him. Allow what he's done on the cross to cleanse you from a guilty conscience, to purify your heart, even purify your flesh. You can be born again today, and Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. And though oppression may come, he's the one that brings compassion. He's the one that brings comfort. And he's the one that intervenes in the midst of the trial. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and have the worship team come on up. You can just put your things aside and we're going to close with a couple more songs. Let's just let our hearts just stay in an attitude of of worship and of prayer. Lord Jesus, if there are any in this place today that have never been washed clean from their sins. Right now they stand before you in garments that are filthy. Lord, you say in you, through faith in you, through trusting in you, through resting in you, there's forgiveness of sins. You'll clothe us in robes of righteousness. Lord, for those that are here that have been trying to appease you through gifts and actions rather than just humility and faith, we pray that today that those people would appeal to the tender mercies of God. And right now, if that's you, just just do that. Just appeal to the mercies of God. Just say, Lord, I don't rest in myself or in my good deeds because my good deeds aren't very good. I rest in you and the good deed you did on the cross. 
and you poured out your life as a ransom for many. Please forgive me of my sins. I confess them before you. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Place your Holy Spirit in me that I could have power to live a life for you. Change me, Lord. I want to be born again. And if you prayed that, just let the joy of salvation fill your heart. Just know you're forgiven as you pray that prayer of faith. But it doesn't just stay there. Now you get to live a life for Jesus. He'll empower you to do that. Lord, for those of us that are just going through times of trial and oppression and just struggling, perhaps there's even spiritual oppression against us today. We pray you would fight, Lord, that you would bring the comfort. Lord, that you would just call each individual here by name. Lord, you know our futures, and we pray that you would intervene in our lives so that you would be the most glorified. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close with a few songs.
creation Turn heavy with your hand You spoke the earth into motion My soul now What can 
today we are sinful men and women just so much so that it just makes our consciences shriek and yet Lord we're so thankful that we've been covered by the blood of the lamb those that have put their trust in you your wrath will pass over and Lord we're so thankful for that mercy and that grace that's found in you We just pray that you would encourage the hearts today that are going through much oppression, Lord. And Lord, may they just see your intervention in their lives and just be able to cry out and worship to you because of your great faithfulness. We do that right now, Lord. We worship you and we just say hallelujah for who you are, God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.